1: Welcome to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and managing editor of the Business of Government magazine. For over 16 years, the IBM Center for the Business of Government has sought to connect research to practice, engaging authors and academics who in their research and studies contribute in some form or fashion to changing the way government does business. Many important social problems cross-agency boundaries, and working effectively to solve these problems is not easy. In 2012, the New Zealand government tried something new and different. The government created a system of interagency performance targets. Government leaders were frustrated by cross-agency social problems that persisted, and they wanted to push public servants to purposefully and creatively overcome the challenges to collaboration. Almost 30 years of trial and error since 1989, New Zealand's results program has been a remarkable success. But this success has not come easily. How have public management reforms evolved in New Zealand? What is the New Zealand results program? And what can other governments learn from the New Zealand experience? Today, I will explore these questions and so much more with our very special guest, Professor Rodney Scott co-author of the IBM Center report, Interagency Performance Targets, a Case Study of New Zealand's Results Program. Professor Scott, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So, before we delve into your report for the IBM Center, I'd like to get some context. Um, would you tell us, sort of give us a background of the nation of New Zealand, its size, its budget, population, and more importantly, what form of government?
2: Okay. So New Zealand's a, a small nation in the South Pacific that consists of a number of islands. Um, uh, it was originally settled by the Māori people. Um, uh, and then in 1840, they signed a treaty with the uh, European explorers. And so ever since, it's, it's existed as this kind of partnership between Polynesian and European cultures. And that plays out uh, in the way that they govern, in the way that they make decisions, Um, Even in the way that they use language, so I do apologize if I accidentally drop into um, any Terraria Māori words, uh, uh, which often get stuck into English sentences by predominantly English speakers in New Zealand. Um, Size, it's about similar size to Colorado in surface area and in population, so it's about four and a half million people and mountainous and very beautiful. Despite being a middle income country so it's it's between twenty and twenty fifth in the world in terms of GDP per capita uh, it scores incredibly highly on most prosperity measures, quality of life indexes uh, integrity measures, quality of government, usually at the top or in the top one or uh, two or three for most of those measures as a parliamentary democracy modeled on the Westminster system uh, but has a unicameral legislature, so there's only one house of parliament uh, has a prime minister cabinet, which consists of senior ministers and ministers. And then the uh, government is divided into 29 public service departments, which are led by a chief executive who's an independent civil servant. One of the other main distinctions of the way the New Zealand government works compared to other countries is the proportion of services that are delivered by the central government. So, of all developed nations, it's the highest percentage delivered by the central government. There's no states, there's no provinces. There are local authorities, but the services that they deliver are considerably smaller. So, it is possible to conceive of the New Zealand government as being a single system, largely consisting of these central government departments.
1: Well, that's interesting. It's a great context for giving us an overview of the evolution of public management reforms in New Zealand. Could you give us that?
2: Sure. So, um, Prior to 1989, New Zealand had a inputs-based uh, public management system, so public managers were responsible for describing how they were deploying people and money. The rules were set centrally right down to procurement sta- of stationary kind of rules, and managers had very little discretion in how they operated. This wasn't very efficient, and there was a uh, financial, a fiscal crisis in the late 80s that caused New Zealand to, to really need to think about how they could deliver their public services more efficiently. And they introduced a number of reforms that, over time, have become known as as new public management. At the time, they, that wasn't a phrase that existed. And the ma- main change was uh, division of government into smaller, largely single-purpose agencies, and the provision of great deal of discretion and delegated authority to the leaders of those departments to really manage them uh, as they saw fit, to borrow practices from the private sector and not to rely on any central or bureaucratic rules. They had a close relationship with a responsible minister and that vertical relationship allowed the government to be very responsive um, to uh, changing political priorities, but it also had some challenges that it introduced. So Those reforms were very successful in solving the problems of the day and creating a more efficient government. They also created fragmentation in its place. So now it's much more difficult for agencies to work on problems that cross the responsibilities of multiple agencies. In the 30 years since then, most of the reforms have been trying to respond to the challenges that were created by the reforms of the later 80s. So having uh, created a more efficient system, we've spent the last 30 years trying to deal with fragmentation and create a more effective system. The most recent of those reforms was um, came on the back of the global financial crisis. So like most countries, New Zealand had to come up with a way to save some money. Um, there were declining revenues because of declining economic activity. And... Uh, Most countries responded by cutting the services that they provided. And the New Zealand government didn't want to do that. They wanted to come up with a way to make public services more effective so that there was less demand for continued uh, welfare assistance and things. If some of these problems could be solved, then they wouldn't be so expensive. So they looked at some of the most persistent problems that have bedeviled governments over many years despite great attempts at solving them and discovered that what they had in common was that they, they spanned the responsibilities of multiple agencies. So in 2012, they launched um, a program called the Better Public Services Results Program, which is um, the subject of the report. And uh, that was about setting uh, interagency targets uh, to achieve um, uh, impacts or, or intermediate outcomes and to improve those 10 uh, problems that they saw as the most important Uh the, the reforms uh, of, of 2012 introduced this focus on intermediate outcomes because intermediate outcomes are uh, closer to the attribution and to the activity of public servants um, while still having some intrinsic value. In contrast to, say, end outcomes, which tend to have um, a much longer delay between an action and its observed effect.
1: So, Rodney, what prompted your Interest in the research area that you work for the report for IBM Center, and perhaps you could tell us how you conducted your research.
2: Okay, so um, the program consisted of ten results that were scheduled to run from two thousand and twelve to the middle of two thousand and fifteen. So in two thousand and sixteen, uh, the government had to start to think about what would happen when those targets were achieved, and so it wanted to look at had the program been successful, and were there any aspects of it that should be retained, changed, modified, discontinued? So they engaged me and uh, my co-author, Ross Boyd, to do an evaluation of the program. Uh, Ross is the public servant within the State Services Commission who leads the the program, and I was coming from uh, University of New South Wales. The evaluation consisted of a partnership between practitioners and academics Mm -hmm. um, in quite a new way that hadn't been done in New Zealand before, so I reached out to a number of academics that uh, I knew of who had done similar work and we collectively designed uh, with the public servants and with the academics an evaluation program. Um, some of the people I'm sure I'll, I'll forget names, but uh, Gwyn Bevan from London School of Economics, Jennifer Green from University of Illinois here in America, Chris Ansell and Eugene Bardak, both from Berkeley. And Yorot de Jong and Mark Kramer, both from the Kennedy School of Government, were all very helpful in helping us design how we should think about uh, evaluating this this program. And the evaluation had two parts. Um, if you think of it as a as a target system, it's very easy to to imagine how we do a summative evaluation because you have agreed measures and you can track whether or not those things improve over time. And since we used established measures, we had uh, some trend data and some idea of what the counterfactual would be. So a summative evaluation, did this work, was relatively easy to conduct. We also wanted to look at what made it work so that we could refine and improve the program. And that's why we used a formative evaluation. I, in a consultation with Jennifer Green, who I mentioned earlier, uh, Professor Green is an expert on mixed methods evaluation, so triangulating findings from a number of different evaluations where any single uh, information source might not be uh, fully reliable. So we did uh, the first evaluation was a comparative study looking at there are ten targets and the public servants responsible for them uh, responded in different ways to how they would manage them. So the comparative study looked at um, the differences between those ten cases. Uh, which ones were most successful, which ones weren't, which practices seemed to contribute to, to the greatest uh, improvements. The second evaluation was a, a more of a normative study. So we used an established framework for some sort of best practice approach to collaboration. We used the collective impact framework, which had been developed by FSG, and worked with uh, FSG and particularly um, uh, Mark Kramer, to um, adapt that uh, evaluation to work in the public sector, it had been originally designed for work in sort of a cross-sector environment between NGOs, the public sector, and the private sector. The third thing we did is we got 89 case vignettes, descriptions of using a kind of positive deviance approach, looking at the best cases of how uh, individual people had been affected by the the results programme, and then tried to trace backwards what were the changes, what were the the public management practices that allowed those uh, services to be changed and that were different to or that would have prohibited those changes from occurring previously. And the fourth one uh, was looking at uh, the, the inter- interaction between um, different types of targets and measures and how that affected the observed behaviours of the public servants responsible for, for um, achieving them. We looked at for common factors that were consistently associated with um, success across those four different evaluations did some comparison to some target regimes in other countries, and then sort of assembled that into a series of practice insights or success factors that we think uh, we're reasonably confident uh, contributed to the success of the program.
1: What are the 10 cross-cutting problems the New Zealand Results Program focuses on? We will explore this question and so much more when our special edition of the Business of Government Hour, A Conversation with Authors, returns. The latest edition of the Business of Government magazine delves into a diverse set of topics and public management issues facing us today. Hi, I'm Michael Keegan, the editor of the Business of Government magazine, and with each edition I present the leadership stories of a select group of public servants and complement their frontline experience with practical insights from thought leaders, merging real world experience with practical scholarship. Check out the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine and find out. Download or order a free copy at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors exploring ideas for improving government effectiveness with Professor Rodney Scott, co-author of the IBM Center Report, Interagency Performance Targets, a case study of New Zealand's results program. So, uh, Rodney, I want to understand uh, the 10 results initiative. Uh, You mentioned the 10 cross-cutting problems that you focused on um, in the New Zealand results program. Uh, I'd like to explore each one. And the first one up is um, Results 1. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Why was it chosen? How did agencies organize to address it? And perhaps you could highlight some successful practices.
2: Sure. So uh, Result 1 was set at reducing the number of people continuously receiving job seeker benefit for over a year. New Zealand believes that it's important to have uh, a welfare system to support people who who are out of work, but the intention is that that's a, a temporary support to get people back into employment as opposed to being a long-term mechanism. The target provided a rationale for frontline innovation. It provided a a measuring stick. So if if frontline staff wanted to try something new, they had a way of demonstrating that it was successful because it was very clear and measurable what it was that success meant. So one example was the opening of a new Kmart store in a, a small town called Richmond. A case manager from the Ministry of Social Development approached the manager from the Kmart store and said, um, We'll run all of your recruitment for you if you want. We'll do it for free. Uh, there's only one condition. In the pool of candidates that we put forward to you, we'd like the opportunity to put forward some of our clients. And so they did, and a large n- number of the eventual hires were people who'd been out of work for over 12 months, people who, who were on the job seeker benefit. Having a measure like this helped. In many cases, the, the progress was uh, faster than what we'd expected. Really? So they were set the goal of reducing... Um, the beneficiaries by 30%, and it looked like they'd achieved that in about three years as opposed to five. So the government wanted to reset the target even higher to set uh, the aspirations of public servants higher. One of the challenges there is that the target now includes all welfare payments, not just job seeker payments, so any uh, beneficiaries uh, of working age who've received a benefit continuously for 12 months. And what that means is it's no longer possible for the Ministry of Social Development to go it alone on this. Uh, a lot of these cases have multiple factors why they are not in the workforce. They might have uh, mental health or substance abuse problems. They might have physical disabilities that are limiting their ability to be in the workplace. They might have particular skills that are lacking, um, and so they need to interact with the education sector. So making further progress after that initial first burst of success really depended on on those th- agencies in the social, education, and health sectors working together to uh, identify their highest needs clients and to come up with a plan for how they would be uh, brought back into a um, more full um, and, and productive interaction with the workforce and society. And, and results, too,
1: focused on increasing participation in early childhood education. Uh, what's the target there? Why was it chosen? And how did agencies address the issue? And perhaps you could highlight some of the successful practices that were born.
2: Sure. So in 2012, the rate of participation in early childhood education was a bit over 94%. Mm -hmm. And participation in quality early childhood education is a really good predictor for lifelong education and and employment success. So the government wanted to increase that number. Um, They set themselves the goal of 98%, um, which was right on the upper edge of what international best practice said was possible. The use of of data became really important in addressing that that problem. Until then, government had been focused on providing uh, services, but hadn't necessarily focused on who were the people who currently weren't accessing services. Mm -hmm. So when they really delved into that data, they found uh, small pockets, small communities that were really underrepresented in early childhood education. One of those was people from Pacific Islands who were living in the southern suburbs of Auckland. Through mining this data, they also discovered that those same communities had a really strong participation in the local rugby league clubs, the sporting clubs. And so the Ministry for Pacific People and the Ministry for Education approached the New Zealand Rugby League Association um, to talk about how they might be able to solve this. And now the club rooms for those rugby league clubs host play groups uh, during the week, because those club rooms aren't being used for anything during the day um, on weekdays. And so that's an example of this principle of, of connecting people to people in the places that they already go, um, which has been successful, actually, in several of the, the results.
1: And staying with children, the, the third uh, result focused on increasing infant uh, immunization rates and reducing the incidence of rheumatic fever. Uh, can you tell us why that was chosen? What were the targets? And sort of like how, what agencies were involved to tackle this issue? And were there any successful practices
2: gleaned from this effort? Sure. So result three is a bit of a weird one. We often talk about there being (laughs) 10 problems and 10 results and 10 targets. Well, there's 10 problems and 10 results, but there's 11 targets. Targets. And result number three is the one that has two targets. One of those is is a universal target. It's about Mm -hmm. increasing vaccination amongst all uh, infants uh, aged eight months. Um, So the goal was to improve it from 83% to 95%. This was at a time when the uh, immunization rate had plateaued at, at 83 or low 80s for, for several years. The other one was rheumatic fever. And rheumatic fever is a serious disease that um, uh, affects only a much smaller segment of the population. Mm-hmm. But it's very closely linked to um, poverty and to overcrowded housing conditions. Interesting. So the only way to reduce uh, the rates of rheumatic fever is to tackle a whole bunch of complex social problems to do with poverty and housing. So the reason these were both put forward is that they wanted one target that everybody could relate to, and one target that was really well focused and put the attention on those people who needed it most. Um, so that's that's why they were both included. This question of narrow targets versus broad targets is, I think, a really important one. There are obviously there are trade-offs between them. I think one of the best examples of how they solved uh, solve this, they managed to reduce rheumatic fever rates by two thirds um, over the last four years, was in a partnership with two charitable organizations in the Auckland region to form what is called the Auckland Wide Housing Initiative. And that involved the Ministry of Health and the Ministry of Social Development connecting their client data, which is something that they had known for a long time was useful to do, but they hadn't had the impetus to do it. Mm -hmm. Um, It's quite a difficult thing to do from a technical standpoint. What that allowed them to do is to identify people who were at risk of developing rheumatic fever because of their housing conditions, and so to prioritise those people for efforts to either improve their housing conditions or to move them to a different housing environment. And that's been something where uh, having a target that changes quickly has been really important. So after the first six months, they focused on health promotion, and they managed to drop it a couple of percent, but hadn't got the kind of big change they were looking for. Six months later, they decided to focus more on on a screening initiative. That dropped it a few percent more, but not in the kind of scale that they were talking about. Having a target which said we want it to reduce by two-thirds provided enough uh, ambition and urgency that we knew 2%, 3% wasn't sufficient. So we had to do something radically different. So that's that was the impetus to try something much harder, which was to pull this this uh, administrative data between multiple agencies.
1: And staying on children, uh, the fourth area was uh, re- reducing the number of assaults on children. Um, is it a serious issue in the nation? And what were some of the practice best practices in this area that you've gleaned?
2: Mm. So um, assaults on children is one of those cases that it doesn't necessarily affect a huge number of people, but mm-hmm. the people who are affected, it's a very serious yes. Impact for. So the numbers that we're talking about are around 3,000 cases per year of substantiated physical assault against children. It's one of those situations where, unfortunately, the actual incidents will be greater than the reported incidents. But that's why we use substantiated physical abuse, because that's the, the measure that tends to track most consistently over time, irrespective of awareness campaigns, as opposed to the reported rate of physical assaults, for example, which goes up and down um, depending on on public awareness. It was a little different from the others in that this one, rather than plateauing as the others had been, there'd been persistent problems that the government was stuck on. This was one that was getting worse. So there'd been a 10-year trend of the rate of substantiated abuse against children increasing by 5% per year. So even if that trend continued for another five years, we would have been at least 25% higher by now than we were uh, five years ago. Public servants recommended the target be that uh, we stop that upward trend this is one of those situations where ministers didn't take their advice. Ministers decided that uh, stopping things getting worse is a different motivational effect than making things better. So they set the target at reducing the um, rate by 5% from where it was and uh, and arresting that trend of increasing 5%. Um, Two things about this. One, trend data is so important in setting targets effectively knowing that this one was going up we set the reduction rate much uh, less ambitiously or much uh, less of a reduction than we otherwise would crime for example which we'll talk about later crime had been uh, going downwards and so you can aff- afford to set a much more ambitious target against that trend data the other thing is just the the way that these targets speak to the motivations of the public servants responsible for achieving them it uh, looks like we're going to pass that that uh, target took a couple of years to arrest the upward trend. So we actually were then uh, 10% above where we uh, had started. And then since that time, we've been able to, to uh, reduce the number such that it now looks like we'll be between 5 and 10% below the baseline of 2012. One example of how that's been achieved was the establishment of something we called children's teams in several areas where there was a greater concentration of these cases. And a children's team is a multidisciplinary team that forms a, a kind of wraparound service. They've been described in the literature as a goal-directed network. They they connect families and the different professionals that that family works with to uh, collectively develop a single integrated plan for the well-being of that child and their context, the family that they're, they're living in. And then they uh, each make commitments for how they're going to contribute to that plan, and they monitor it over time.
1: Fascinating. So, you know, the, the first eight results kind of were traditional government social policy type uh, focus areas. Uh, the ninth is a slightly different. Could you tell us a little bit about the ninth result, some of the innovations associated with it?
2: Yeah. So, result nine um, is about making it easier for government. So, um, it made easier for businesses to deal with government, I'm sorry. They were given a very difficult task because the result, uh, So because New Zealand distinguishes between the result, what we're trying to achieve, the target, the level of ambition for, for what we're trying to achieve, and the measure, how we'll assess progress along the way. And Result9, through um, uh, various reasons and because um, these kind of programs are always designed by multiple authors, ended up in a situation where the result, target, and measure didn't quite align with each other. So the Result9 result was that there would be a one-stop shop for government. So for businesses to interact with government, they would only have to interact with a single online portal. That's a solution. That's not a, an outcome. The target was that we would reduce cost by one quarter. So the cost of complying with regulations was estimated about $4 billion, and they wanted to reduce that to $3 billion. Then they found out that it was very difficult to measure that cost. Mm-hmm. So they measured perception of the ease of business to interact with government. So they had a survey measure, uh, and they knew how easy it was for businesses to interact with private sector people they had to interact with, and they wanted to try and reach that target. Mm-hmm. The whole purpose of having a target is to focus uh, and align efforts so everyone has a common agenda that they're working towards. When you've got three different goals and different people are interpreting uh, one or, of the three as being the main goal, then you start to lose that focusing effect and that um, commonality or common understanding. So they spent uh, several years, about two years, trying to um, really get clear on what it was that they were trying to achieve and that it was focusing on... on Uh, making it easier for business, uh, not necessarily about providing a single online shop. One example where they were able to overcome that challenge was the creation of a single identifier for businesses. So you now have a single customer number, whether you're dealing with uh, the company's office or the um, inland revenue, you can provide your administrative details once and it permeates through um, the administrative data of all of the agencies. It's called the National Business Number and, and it's been one of those things that businesses have told us that they really like. They'd been very frustrated at having to tell the same information to, to multiple agencies and very frustrated about the fact that we didn't seem to know who they were. They'd, they'd told the company's office that they no longer existed. Why did they now need to tell um, the uh, insurance, the Accident Compensation Corporation or their, the taxation department that they didn't exist anymore? So now you can do that all in one place and um, that's a much more efficient Uh, uh, much more efficient for for businesses, even though it was much more difficult for government.
1: So, Rodney, the final result focused on making sure New Zealanders can complete their transactions with government easily in a digital environment. Can you tell us more about this result? What were some of the uh, issues uh, addressed and uh, some of the solutions um,
2: achieved? Uh, So, a lot of uh, government services, you still had to fill in a paper form. Um, You had to turn up to an office and that just uh, wasn't the way people wanted to deal with government anymore. It wasn't the way they were used to dealing with their phone company or their, their electricity company. So why would they expect to deal with, with government that way? So the goal was fairly ambitious there. It was to reduce uh, increase from 29% to 75% the proportion of, serv- of transactional services that were completed online. That's a good measure because uh, it's not about how many are available online. It's how many people are choosing to access online because it's easy to do online. Again, one of the solutions, a bit like result nine, was uh, making it so you only needed to tell us once. There's a a new service called RealMe. RealMe is a single personal identifier that you can get from the government. And that means instead of having to prove who you are each time you want to register for a service, you just tell us your RealMe login and we know who you are. Whether that's Ordering a new passport, which you can do online and it turns up three days later in the mail. It's, it's an incredibly uh, quick and efficient process. Whether that's booking a camping hut through the Department of Conservation. You just tell them your real me, username and password, and they know and, and believe you, who you are. You don't need to provide any further authentication than that.
1: What lessons can other countries learn from the New Zealand experience? We'll explore this question and so much more. On our special edition of the Business of Government Hour, A Conversation with Authors, returns.
0: Rob Foster, Chief Information Officer, U.S. Department of the Navy. What are the IT priorities for the U.S. Department of the Navy? How is the Navy leveraging mobility solutions? What is the Navy doing to enhance its IT security? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores these questions and more with Rob Foster, Chief Information Officer, U.S. Department of the Navy. Tune in on Mondays at 11 a.m. for the Business of Government Hour on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m.
1: Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors exploring ideas for improving government effectiveness with Professor Rodney Scott, co-author of the IBM Center Report, Interagency Performance Targets, a case study of New Zealand's results program. So, Rodney, your report outlines uh, practice insights around four distinct areas based on your observation of the implementation efforts undertaken uh, by the New Zealand government. Uh, Would you identify those four distinct areas and how did you come up with them?
2: Okay, So we split the report into um, selecting the results, uh, designing accountability, managing collaboration, and then reporting on progress, Um, mostly for pragmatic reasons that Mm -hmm. um, uh, it was easier to read and remember the practice insights if they were chunked into smaller groups like that. But these were chosen uh, because really, that's the sequence that you follow. Mm -hmm. First, you have to decide what it is that you want to achieve. Then you have to design how you're going to get it done. Then someone actually has to do it and manage the the implementation, and then you review and and report on what you've achieved and start again. So it's a standard uh, design cycle or a policy cycle, and we've just in this case applied it to um, to collaborative target. Mm-hmm.
1: So you know why focus on a few problems rather than many, and what are the benefits of focusing on a few problems?
2: Okay, so I think there's uh, a lot of reasons why why keeping uh, the number small. We use ten problems. Um, uh, is beneficial. Uh, one is that they're easy to recall. Mm-hmm. So if you work in central government in New Zealand, if you work in a central agency, or if you're a minister, or if you're a senior manager, um, you can probably list all those 10 off the top of your head. And there aren't many target regimes around the world where you could say that. One of the other reasons that it's uh, useful, I think, to limit the number is that it increases the relative weight of success or failure in each problem you've got 100 targets and it looks like you're not going to achieve some of them. It's pretty easy to write them off and focus on the others. Um, in the case of 10, you're going to have to focus on all 10 until they're, the, till they're completed. Nobody's going to allow you to forget about two of them and only report on eight next time. The second benefit is um, the finite time available for senior uh, management and ministers. So the public sector has tens and even hundreds of thousands of employees. So it's certainly possible to do hundreds and thousands of things at once. But um, in the New Zealand system, ministers and departmental chief, chief executives are really important. Their buy-in is critical if you're going to overcome some of the inertia of working across multiple agencies. And that's only a small number of people, so it's not possible for them to focus on, on a very large number of problems. Um, you capture their attention on the few uh, problems that are most important and you uh, Uh, And you try and go at them hard, you fix them, and then you go on to other problems rather than maintaining efforts across a large number of problems for a long period of time.
1: Yeah, and and it's kind of a cross-agency priority goal kind of thing here in the States. But uh, how is it important to involve other agencies in selecting problems to address?
2: Okay. Um, There really is a balance, and, and there are benefits to having agencies select their own goals. There are benefits to having ministers select goals for them. Um, Involving agencies means that those uh, selections are informed by a much greater pool of expertise. We also involve the science advisory group, which is a a pool of of scientists and academic experts in selecting results as well. So that should improve the quality of the selection process. It should improve um, picking results that matter, that will make a difference, measuring them in a sensible way, measuring the aspects of that outcome that are the most important. Um, there's also some research that suggests that public servants are much more motivated to achieve targets that they were involved in selecting. Mm-hmm. But the reason I said at the start it's a balance is because um, it's our experience that public servants tended to be much more conservative and risk-averse. So they picked low targets. They picked, um, we've been improving this at 2% per year, maybe we can go for three. Ministers, on the other hand, wanted uh, a no child left behind equivalents, you know, can we get to 100 Um, And having those two balances between the ambition and the realism and pragmatism and the risk-averse kind of uh, bureaucratic approach, um, I think helped us pick targets that were stretched without being impossible, that kept people engaged uh, throughout the five years. We had three that were too easy and were achieved early, and they were uh, revised to make them more difficult. But now we're in a situation where uh, will probably get about somewhere between five and eight of them reach the target, but all 10 will go close. And that's, I think, a sign that they'll set at the right level, that they've continued to be motivating right to the end of the, the five-year period. Interesting. So, uh, Ronnie, why is it
1: important to build on existing
2: relationships when selecting results to pursue? Um, we just found it's easier. It is. So... Uh, the results where agencies that worked together before could hit the ground running. They trusted each other. They understood um, the cultural differences between the agencies and the way that things are done in the different places, and they were able to come up with some sort of uh, a shared way of doing things that married the cultures of those two places. Those that uh, hadn't worked together before, they took time to build trust and to understand each other's ways. If they tried to launch straight into doing something complicated, mm-hmm. that usually failed. If they started by doing small changes and progressively building trust, building momentum um, from the small successes they were able to achieve, they were able to eventually get to the point where they could try more ambitious things. The ones that had worked together for a long time didn't have that same challenge.
1: Mm-hmm. So is it best for program owners to measure intermediate outcomes? And, and and my second half of that question is there's a lot of terminology thrown around when you're dealing with performance management uh, as a, a regime. Uh, could you illustrate examples of output versus intermediate outcomes
2: versus end outcomes? Sure. So there's, um, there's benefits to each kind of performance measure, and you use them to different things. But for this particular application, intermediate outcomes were the best option. Okay. So New Zealand had tried using end outcome measures, so the ultimate societal change that you're trying to achieve. Um, the problem with that is that... Uh, uh, The gap between when you make a change and when you observe a result can be very long, can be measured in years, can be measured in decades. You also have a great uh, difficulty attributing uh, the changes that you uh, observe with the changes that you made. So um, this makes it very difficult to do any kind of adaptive management. I gave the example before about rheumatic fever, Mm -hmm. how after six months they they saw how their health promotion activities were affecting the incidence of rheumatic fever, so they tried something else. Mm So you need something where you get that fast feedback that this is working. And and for us, we we set the goal of six months. You need to know within six months whether it's working. So there has to be that shorter lag between uh, action and effect. New Zealand also tried um, uh, output measures, and we we generally use output measures. Those are what are the services and goods that you're providing directly um, as a government agency. They change quickly and are usually very easily attributable to the actions of agencies. But they don't necessarily have intrinsic value. Um, they're not something that, uh, in and of themselves, change the lives of New Zealanders, or, or they can be achieved in a way that doesn't change the lives of New Zealanders. So, for example, if we look at result two, we can say as an output uh, that the Ministry of Education can fund early childhood education centres. They're provided by private providers, but the Ministry of Education can, can fund them. Or we can try to ensure that children are actually participating in these services or using these services. We might think of that as an intermediate outcome or something that's co-produced with society. That's the measure that we actually used. Or we can measure the long-term uh, uh, educational employment outcomes that those children achieve, but that might take 20 years to, to observe. So if you're going to use an intermediate outcome, one of the main cautions is that you need to, to have reasonable confidence that the achievement of that intermediate outcome will lead to longer-term end outcomes, but that using it as a proxy measure in the meantime um, to uh, to give you that feedback to allow you to adapt what you're doing.
1: Mm-hmm. So g- given your uh, evaluation and research for your report for the IBM Center uh, around New Zealand's results program, why is it so important to align results, targets, and measures? Sure.
2: So... Um, when New Zealand distinguishes between these three things, they they do it for a reason. Um, but, but by having three different uh, things, they're often conflated in other countries, you also have the opportunity that they don't align. The reason that they're separated is um, you want a result to be in the simplest language you can that speaks to people's motivations and passions. It should be about changing people's lives. A target needs to be the simplest number that you can come up with so um, in our case they are often count measures so how many people have this how many people have this Um, they're not subjective they're not um, really that open to interpretation they stand out on their own and they provide the public with trust Mm -hmm. The, the public goes okay you're not trying to hide something from me you're telling me straight up how many kids are graduating high school and is that more or less than it was before And then the measure is where you get technical. So if I use the example in result three, um, we don't know the incidence of rheumatic fever. The goal is to reduce rheumatic fever by two thirds. We don't know how many people actually have rheumatic fever. We know how many people present to hospital with rheumatic fever, and we think that's a pretty good measure. But some people have to go to hospital multiple times. So uh, we use the measure of the first incidence hospitalization for an individual within a 12-month period. And that was developed with the data analysts and the scientists to come up with a technical measure that is the best way of of, uh, assessing progress. So that's the reason we split them out, because they serve different purposes. But they um, ideally should all measure the same thing. They should uh, be aligned so that they provide that focus and that sense of purpose for the public servants. And when they don't, you get get confusion between public servants as as to what they're actually trying to work to achieve.
1: Mm -hmm. And, And it's true that targets are useful. Management tools—they um, clarify purpose and ambition. Um, how important is it to publicly commit to your uh, performance management
2: targets? Um, I think it's been hugely important uh, to the success of this program, um, despite the fact it was very scary for the government, mm-hmm. and uh, this has been something that public servants have been advocating for for a long time, and governments have been very reluctant to do because. Um, uh, when you go out and tell the public that you're going to achieve a number by a, a date, then you will be held—you um, will be punished if you don't achieve that number. Um, new Zealand, like many countries, um, likes to start new things. Mm-hmm. I've uh, been speaking to to public servants around uh, the U.S., and it seems to be something that happens here as well. Uh, in in this case, uh, every few years, the New Zealand government will. Um, launch a new flagship program, and public servants aren't really sure whether that will stick around. They're not sure if they'll actually have to deliver on the things that they've been asked to do. Uh, In 2012, the New Zealand government uh, went out publicly and said, this is what we achieve over five years. These are the things that we think are important. This is how we'll report it and when we'll report it. We'll tell you every six months. We'll show you these line graphs. Um, It's going to be very difficult for us to, to walk away from those. So they were intentionally tying their own hands, Mm -hmm. um, which is something very uh, brave and and risky for ministers to do. Um, But they did it because uh, it was a signal to public servants. Public servants knew, well, ministers have tied their hands. They can't walk away from this, so we can't walk away from it either. We have to go all in on this, because at the end of the five-year period, we're going to be held responsible for whether or not we've achieved these things. We know this target program is going to last for five years. Um, And that's been quite different to um, other reforms that have been launched with great fanfare but have sort of gradually faded over time.
1: Mm -hmm. So I'd like to get your insights on designing accountability. New Zealand's results um, program uh, combines, as you pointed out, a top-down governance uh, with a uniquely bottom-up innovation approach. Um, What did New Zealand learn by trial and error, say over three phases, and how did New Zealand hold leaders collectively responsible
2: so, uh, New Zealand's been accused of being obsessed with accountability. We uh, have historically worked on the principle of a single throat to choke. So, everything must come down to one person in the end. There must be one person who's responsible. And that gets in the way of collaboration. So, holding individuals accountable for collaboration uh, has always been a fraught endeavour. New Zealand um, first tried uh appointing one chief executive as the nominal leader, a first amongst equals. Mm -hmm. And they were responsible for influencing their other chief executives to cooperate with them to achieve the target. This focus on having one person ultimately responsible uh, made other contributing agencies feel less responsible. They felt like it was something that was optional for them. They didn't have skin in the game. It wasn't their reputation that was on the line. So the second thing that the State Services Commission tried... um, They switched to focusing on behaviors, uh, which agencies look like they're contributing to collaboration, which ones look like they're doing their share, which ones are being cooperative, which ones are putting aside some of their own priorities to work for the collective good. Um, And that's great in theory, um, and it had some uh, successes in practice, but collaboration is something of a black box. Uh, It's very difficult from the outside to really understand what's going on um, what are surface behaviours versus what is actually making a difference? So the current system, which was adopted in two thousand and fourteen, was to hold groups of chief executives blindly collectively responsible for the targets. Uh, so in the case of reducing crime, the chief executive of the Ministry of Justice, the New Zealand Police, and the Department of Corrections are all equally responsible for reducing crime and criminal reoffending. They can't say that they were successful, but the others failed. Um, similarly, they can't be told that they failed when the overall program was a success. Now, this isn't fair. Um, fairness isn't isn't what we're going for with this particular approach. It means that you might have a free rider. Um, you might have somebody who doesn't contribute, but because of the great efforts of everybody else, they're still rewarded. You might have somebody who's punished because despite the fact, the fact that they did everything they could do, the other agencies just didn't pull their weight. But if we ignore fairness for a moment, it promotes the kind of behaviors that we were looking for. Um, it created a kind of normative effect where um, there was peer pressure. Chief executives would pressure their other agencies to do their bit. Um, and there was also a bit of a whatever it takes mentality too. Uh, I don't care what this looks like because I'm not being judged on what it looks like. I'm going make it, to make it succeed somehow. Um, so you had a... a, a much more focus on the um, output that was achieved as opposed to making it look like you were doing the right things. So that's where we are now. It's not a perfect system, but we think it's the best of the three bad systems that we've we've tried. It's the one that seems to result in the best behaviors.
1: What does the road ahead look like for New Zealand's results program? We will explore this question and so much more on our special edition of the Business of Government Hour, A Conversation with Authors, returns. From forging a unity of effort in homeland security, to strategizing today how to field the U.S. Army of tomorrow, to pursuing affordable housing, eliminating fraud, waste, and abuse in healthcare, and securing cyberspace, the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine delves into a diverse set of topics and public management issues facing us today. Hi, I'm Michael Keegan, the editor of the Business of Government magazine, and with each edition, I present the leadership stories of a select group of public servants and complement their frontline experience with practical insights from thought leaders, merging real world experience with practical scholarship. The purpose is not to offer a definitive solution to many of the management challenges facing government executives, but to provide a resource from which to draw practical, actionable recommendations on how best to confront these issues. Check out the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine and find out. We bring you insights and interviews from government executives who are changing the way government does business. Download or order a free copy at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors exploring ideas for improving government effectiveness with Professor Rodney Scott, co-author of the IBM Center Report, Interagency Performance Targets, a case study of New Zealand's results program. So, Rodney, one observation that was made in your report is that uh, in previous attempts at cross-agency collaboration, it was hard for agencies to get started. Uh, So how important is it for agencies just to get started and learn by doing?
2: Sure, so the, a lot of the collaboration literature talks about the the norming and forming phases that collaborative groups go through, and I suspect that's that's great. That's a really important thing, and it helps uh, build more sustainable and more trusting relationships. But we just didn't have time. New Zealand set such ambitious targets that there was a real sense of urgency around it. If you spent a year getting to know each other, well, now you've got to achieve, a very difficult target in four years rather than in five. Mm-hmm. So to try and get uh, something started, the State Services Commission required that each of the 10 groups um, submit an action plan for what they were going to do in the first six months. And Often these action plans weren't particularly ambitious. They were um, what's sometimes called quick wins or low-hanging fruit, um, but there were things that everyone knew that they could do right now that would make a difference. And these created small wins that provided a sense of momentum. And once there was momentum, then the agency started to be able to um, to try more ambitious things and to make further gains.
1: Mm-hmm. So I'd like to jump ahead to um, the idea of reporting. Um, something unique about the New Zealand results approach to reporting on trends and sharing success stories, what are the best practices that you identified in that area?
2: Um, the New Zealand approach to reporting was quite different to what we'd seen in other countries. So, uh, probably the most famous target regime in recent years was the in the UK government, the delivery units under the Blair, um, the Blair government. Um, this approach earned the nickname "targets and terror." Um, <laughs> the aim was to publicly shame bad performers and use fear of humiliation to motivate uh, performance. Uh, terrorizing public servants might bring a useful jolt in some cases, particularly if you're looking to move from awful to adequate. Probably not going to promote innovation because people don't want to take risks. And uh, so it may not be suitable for high-performing agencies that want to get better. It's also unlikely to be sustainable in the long run because uh, terrorizing people is not something that uh, tends to uh, make people want to work in that environment. Um... And that's how, largely how the, U, the UK used it. It was a short-term intervention used for three or four years that um, was used to shock bad performing agencies into action. New Zealand faced a different situation. It had largely efficient and high-performing agencies that were just struggling in a particular area where no one knew what the solution was. These, these um, cross-agency problems that have been persistent over time where the solutions were going to need to be a little bit risky, a little bit experimental, quite innovative. So fear wasn't going to be the best motivating tactic for that kind of context. So they need to um, focus on rewarding success rather than punishing failure. The reporting system had a lot to do with that. Um, The reports consist of a line graph that shows performance uh, over time. And that's really useful because um, it shows that even if we're not meeting the target, we're better than we were. That's a positive story. So if we have a situation like uh, immunization where we can um, improve the immunization rate from 83% to 95%, well, if we get 94%, that's still amazing. That's still uh, almost two-thirds fewer children uh, who aren't fully vaccinated. That's a great success. If we just reported the target and the number and we said we've got 84 and the goal was 85, that's a failure, that's a red circle. If you show a graph that shows that there was a, a flat line from 2000 to 2012 and then a drastic improvement, it seems almost churlish to <laughs> to say, well, we didn't quite make 85. So that's helped. That's helped the media describe these things as improvements for which targets were used as a motivating mechanism as opposed to a pass-fail grade for government. The other thing uh, in the reporting is directly underneath those those line graphs There are human stories. So we took um, some of the most successful innovations and uh, for each of the um, cases they were described in terms of how they would made a difference in the lives of New Zealanders. So a very human element. And then relate that back to what is it different about public management or how public services are delivered that's made a change for that person. That's great for the public servants. That's why they're there. They don't care about performance management regimes or or, or reporting tools. Those are artefacts that the central agencies come up with. The public servants care about making a difference for New Zealanders, so it's motivational for them. It's also stories that the media love. And they pick up and run with it. And so public servants get to see the thing they did being described in the paper as being helping people. Um, And that forms such a strong motivational factor that uh, there's now intense lobbying to get your story into the report. Uh, Every six months when these reports come out, the the 10 results uh, and the staff from the agencies emailing and calling the State Services Commission, please can you feature my my example. Um, They supply written case studies. They've also more recently supplied um, video case studies. So we have now a multimedia presence as well.
1: You know, in your report, um, you identify, I think, about seven findings. Um, Could you give us like a concise highlight of each?
2: Um, Sure. So we tried to summarise what we'd found and and reduce them to the most basic um, and generalisable elements. And they were um, pick a few problems, make those problems narrow and specific and make sure they they matter to New Zealanders or to um, your constituents in whatever uh, jurisdiction you apply this. The second thing was to to set targets. um, So it's a number and a date to create urgency and to create a level of ambition. Next was to declare those publicly, um, so to create a sense of irreversibility um, and accountability to the public that, that you will hold yourself to these things over time and that you won't allow your attention to wane. The next was to try and keep the core collaboration to the most necessary partners. So the more people you try to hold responsible for something, the less any individual feels responsible. Uh, there's experiments on this in uh, the behavioral science literature. They call it the Ringelman effect. If you get one person pulling on a tug of, uh, rope on a tug of war, they try as hard as they can. If you've got 20 people on that rope, the output of each individual is significantly less because they're sure someone else has got it. Um, so keep, that, keep the group co- um, small and keep it to the people that you really need. Um, you can involve others as necessary, you can coordinate, you can information share, but just as far as collective responsibility goes, keep it small. Hold those core partners collectively and equally responsible, and don't try to reward um, behaviors individually. Try and make sure that you continue to hold them always jointly responsible, also that they, um, they want to influence each other. And finally, um, don't just collaborate at the top. Look at creating multiple intertwined governance mechanisms that exist the whole way through the organization. Don't make this a problem for the chief executives or the senior um, managers to, to solve, Make this so that there are operational committees that are working together right down into the organization, so that the whole organization feels committed to doing this, this together, and look for, for ways to signal through that that um, we're all in this together and we're all equally in this together.
1: Mm-hmm. So, looking at the road ahead, at the time of writing your report, uh, the original ten results were nearing completion, so they might be completed by
2: the time we've spoken. But um, what's what's uh, what's next? Um, so the. The original 10 programs, uh, ten targets were scheduled to be completed on June 30th, 2017. Uh, for the three that we revised after three years to make them harder, we thought it was a bit harsh to only give them two years to complete them. So those revised harder targets were set over three years, so they'll be completed in 2018. The government has spent the last year or so going through an incredibly involved process to try to um, understand what are the essential elements of the program to retain, and to identify 10 new problems. So some of them will be about changing the focus within an individual problem. So maybe we'll focus on quantity last time, this time we might focus on, on quality. But some of them are entirely different problem areas, social problems that um, weren't on the radar in 2012 or weren't the number one priorities of government in 2012 but are now then in sometime in this year, and we're not sure when exactly it will happen, the government will come out and announce, these are the new targets. And uh, uh, there'll be a final write-up to explore how close uh, the New Zealand government got to achieving its 10 targets over, over that period. Uh, and then we'll start again and, and, and set new goals for people.
1: Well, Rodney Scott, co-author of the IBM Center Report, Interagency Performance Targets, a Case Study of New Zealand's Results Program. I want to thank you for joining me today. Uh, Thank you for
2: having me. It's been a pleasure.
1: This has been a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors, exploring ideas for improving government effectiveness with Professor Rodney Scott, co-author of the IBM Center Report, Interagency Performance Targets, a Case Study of New Zealand's Results Program. You may order or download a free copy of this or any other IBM Center Report at businessofgovernment.org. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government effectiveness. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan. Thanks for joining us.
0: This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. Rob Foster, Chief Information Officer, U.S. Department of the Navy. What are the IT priorities for the U.S. Department of the Navy? How is the Navy leveraging mobility solutions? What is the Navy doing to enhance its IT security? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores these questions and more with Rob Foster, Chief Information Officer, U.S. Department of the Navy. Tune in on Mondays at 11 a.m. for the Business of Government Hour on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m.